0: Welcome to the science of
2: success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the science of success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick, with a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. Today, you're going to learn what happens when you take people's cookies away, how changing a single phrase drove six times more sales, and Why open outcry auctions turn your brain into mush. Because the science of success has taken off like a rocket ship since launch, we've had more than 80,000 downloads, made the front page of new and noteworthy, and much more. I wanted to offer something to you. I'm giving away my three favorite psychology books to one lucky listener. Just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to 442. 222 to be entered to win. And if you've been listening and loving the podcast, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps spread the word so more people can master the science of success. This is the final episode in a six part mini series on the science of success titled Weapons of Influence and based on the best selling book Influence by Robert Cialdini. Each of these weapons of influence are deeply rooted and verified by experimental psychology research, which you're going to get a ton of amazing examples of. If you're just now tuning into this episode, definitely go back and listen through the series because there's some amazing content in there. Last week, we talked about why con artists wear lifts in their shoes, how a normal person can administer lethal shocks to an innocent research subject why 95% of nurses were willing to give deadly doses of a dangerous drug to their patients, and much more. If you haven't checked that episode out yet, listen to it after you listen to this one. I actually can't believe that Weapons of Influence is already coming to an end. It's been such a fun miniseries, and I love the book Influence by Robert Cialdini, so it's been great for me to go back and really dig into some of these research examples and really learn about them. And it's been awesome to share it uh, with everybody on the podcast, but uh, just because Weapons of Influence is ending, you know we've got some amazing, really, really exciting content, some awesome interviews, some really deep dives into some cool subjects coming up in the next couple weeks. So stay tuned and uh, and get excited. But this week we're going to talk about the scarcity bias. Like many of the weapons of influence, this is something we intuitively know and understand, but often don't realize how powerful it is or how much it impacts our decisions at a subconscious level throughout our daily lives. Here's how Cialdini describes the scarcity bias. Note how he describes something called psychological reactance theory. This is a key part of the scarcity bias and also something that Charlie Munger touches on by another name. He calls it deprival superreaction syndrome. Anyway, here's how Cialdini describes it. Quote: According to the scarcity principle, People assign more value to opportunities when they are less available. The use of this principle for profit can be seen in such compliance techniques as the limited number and deadline tactics, wherein practitioners try to convince us that access to what they are offering is restricted by amount or time. The scarcity principle holds for two reasons. First, because things that are difficult to attain are typically more valuable, the availability of an item or experience can serve as a shortcut cue to its quality. Second, as things become less available, we lose freedoms. According to psychological reactance theory, we respond to the loss of freedoms by wanting to have them, along with the goods or services connected to them, more than before. The scarcity principle is most likely to hold true under two optimizing conditions. First, scarce items are heightened in value when they are newly scarce. That is, we value those things that have become recently restricted more than those that were restricted all along. Second, we are most attracted to scarce resources when we compete with others for them. Compliance practitioners' reliance on scarcity as a weapon of influence is frequent, wide-ranging, systematic, and diverse. Whenever this is the case with a weapon of influence, we can be assured that the principle involved has notable power in directing human action. Unquote. One of the most interesting things that Chieldini mentions in that quote is the fact that we want scarce things even more when we're competing with other people for those goods. And we'll dig into a couple pieces of research that kind of showcase that. But, but let's, let's dig into the research now and look at how the scarcity principle can impact our behavior. Let's start out with an experiment that showcases the scarcity principle at work on kids as early as age two. A study in Virginia had researchers take two toys and place them in a room divided by a plexiglass barrier. For half the kids, the barrier was one foot high, posing no barrier to the child's ability to access the toy. For the other half of the kids, the barrier was high enough that they were obstructed from reaching the toy without going around it. With a small one foot barrier, children showed no preference for either toy. However, as you would expect, once the barrier went up, children went for the obstructed toy three times faster than the easily accessible toy. As the researchers said, quote, the boys in this study demonstrated the classic terrible twos response to a limitation of their freedom, outright defiance, unquote. I think the fascinating thing about the, the two year old plexiglass experiment is the fact that the behavior starts to manifest itself at such an early age, right? And this ties in again to the, the thing that we've harped on again and again is that these Biases are built into our minds. They're ingrained into our bodies and our brains by our society, by evolution, by all kinds of different factors, but they're very, very deeply ingrained, and that's why they have such a powerful effect on shaping human behavior. The next study takes a look at how we perceive items that are banned, limited, and restricted from us. And this result has been repeated across several other and and different banned items with the same results. But in this particular study, it was it was in Dade County, Florida. The government imposed a ban prohibiting, quote, the use and possession of laundry and cleaning products that contained phosphates. Cialdini describes how the residents of Dade County reacted in two parts. Quote, first, in what seems a Florida tradition. Many Miamians turned to smuggling. Sometimes with neighbors and friends in large, quote, soap caravans, they drove to nearby counties to load up on phosphate detergents. Hoarding quickly developed, and in the rush of obsession that frequently characterizes hoarders, families boasted of having 20-year supplies of phosphate cleaners, unquote. That behavior alone is pretty ridiculous and shows the length that people will go once they perceive something as scarce. But that's only really scratching the surface. The underlying subconscious shift that people had towards the phosphate cleaning products after the ban is, to me, the most striking finding. This passage also helps explain the concept of psychological reactance theory that we talked about at the top and how it underpins the scarcity principle. Quote, The second reaction to the law was more subtle and more general than the deliberate defiance of the smugglers and the hoarders. Spurred by the tendency to want what they could no longer have, the majority of Miami consumers came to see phosphate cleaners as better products than before. Compared to Tampa residents who were not affected by the Dade County Ordinance, the citizens of Miami rated phosphate detergents gentler, more effective in cold water, better whiteners and fresheners, and more powerful on stains. After passage of the law, they had even come to believe that the phosphate detergents poured more easily. This sort of response is typical of individuals who have lost an established freedom, and recognizing that it is typical is crucial to understanding how psychological reactants and the principle of scarcity work. When something becomes less available, our freedom to have it is limited, and we experience an increased desire for it. We rarely recognize, however, that psychological reactance has caused us to want the item more. All we know is that we want it. To make sense of our heightened desire for the item, we begin to assign it positive qualities. Unquote. This is an extremely important finding in a very, very, relevant distinction that Childini makes in that in that piece of research. Psychological reactance theory, the fact that we had the freedom of having that detergent and it was taken away, that's what at a subconscious level makes us want it even more. But what happens is we start inventing these conscious justifications for it. We start inventing imagined Bent changes and, uh, of the traits and the characteristics of the item that we want. And this is all taking place at a subconscious level. And consciously, these justifications make a ton of sense. And we believe that, oh, well, if, yeah, phosphate cleaners are better. They're you know better in cold water. They're better uh, fresheners and whiteners. They're better detergent. It even pours more easily. All of these things sort of bubble to the conscious mind. And we believe them that those are the reasons why we're mad that they took away the phosphate cleaners. But the real reason, the real thing at work here is the scarcity principle. It's the fact that it was taken away creates the subconscious desire to have it back. That That visceral two-year-old response of, you can't take away my toys. And we consciously develop all kinds of fake justifications for why we actually wanted it something that we really want to be tuned into and really want to understand because this happens all of the time. Our subconscious makes a decision often because of a psychological bias, often because we're being influenced by one of these weapons of influence. And consciously, we make up a completely different justification for why we made that decision or why we happen to like this thing more than others or why we happen to buy this more frequently than another thing. The next study we're going to look at takes place in a more commercial context. How do buyers respond when what they want suddenly becomes scarce? I like to call this one, where's the beef? This experiment showed how a subtle turn of phrase and the way that information was presented, in this context as exclusive information about an impending scarcity, drove more than six times the amount of sales from buyers. I'll let Cialdini describe the experiment here, quote, the company's customers, buyers for supermarkets and other retail food outlets were called on the phone as usual by a salesperson and asked for a purchase in one of three ways. One set of customers heard a standard sales presentation before being asked for their orders. Another set of customers heard the standard sales presentation plus information that the supply of imported beef was likely to be scarce in the upcoming months. A third group received the standard sales presentation and the information about the scarce supply of beef. However, they also learned that the scarce supply news was not generally available information. It had come, they were told, from certain exclusive contacts that the company had. Thus, the customers who received this last sales presentation learned that not only was the availability of the product limited, so too was the news concerning it. The scarcity double whammy. Unquote. So you probably see what's going to happen next, right? Cialdini continues. Quote. The results of the experiment quickly became apparent when the company's salespeople began to urge the owner to buy more beef because there wasn't enough in the inventory to keep up with all the orders they were receiving. Compared to the customers who only got the standard sales appeal, those who were also told about the future scarcity of beef bought more than twice as much. The real boost in sales, however, occurred among the customers who heard of the impending scarcity via exclusive information. They purchased six times the amount that the customers who had received only the standard sales pitch did. Apparently, the fact that the news about the scarcity information was itself scarce made it especially persuasive, unquote. I love the phrase scarcity double whammy. This experiment is is such a simple and powerful demonstration of how broad reaching and impactful the scarcity principle really can be. When the information about the impending scarcity was given to the customers, they doubled their beef orders, which that alone is a fascinating finding, right? You double your sales just by leveraging the scarcity tactic. But as soon as that information itself somehow becomes scarce, they had six times more sales. That one really makes me pause and think. It's it's amazing how much scarcity can drive human behavior, just The scarcity itself more than doubled their sales. But the fact that the scarcity was scarce information in its own, six times more,
1: it's incredible. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild conquer the weekend in the all-new hyundai santa fe visit hyundaiusa.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details hyundai there's joy in every journey
0: okay it's time to commit 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting.
2: Uh, we're going to look at it in three different parts and I call it the cookie experiment. The first part of the experiment was simple enough. People were shown a jar of cookies. It either had 10 cookies in it or it had two cookies in it. And they were asked to rate the cookies across a number of factors. Unsurprisingly, when there were only two cookies in the jar, they were rated quote, as more desirable to eat in the future, more attractive as a consumer item more costly than the identical cookies in abundant supply, unquote. Then the experimenters mixed things up a bit. They kept the part of the experiment where there were people with a jar that had two cookies in it. But the people with the jar of 10 cookies had the jar taken away and then replaced with a jar that only had two cookies. The goal of this particular twist was to measure how people reacted to a change in scarcity, instead of just constant scarcity conditions. Cialdini explains, quote, In the cookie experiment, the answer was plain. The drop from abundance to scarcity produced a decidedly more positive reaction to the cookies than did constant scarcity. The idea that newly experienced scarcity is the more powerful kind applies to situations well beyond the bounds of the cookie study. For example, social scientists have determined that such scarcity is a primary cause of political turmoil and violence, unquote. The researchers weren't done having fun with cookies yet, however. They wanted to dig even deeper, and so they looked at how subjects would react to cookie scarcity created from different sources. Cialdini elaborates here, quote, Certain participants were told that some of their cookies had to be given away to other raiders in order to supply the demand for cookies in the study. Another set of participants was told that the number of their cookies had to be reduced because the researcher had simply made a mistake and given them the wrong jar initially. The results showed that those whose cookies became scarce through the process of social demand liked the cookies significantly more than did those whose cookies became scarce by mistake. In fact, the cookies made less available through social demand were rated the most desirable of any in the study. This finding highlights the importance of competition in the pursuit of limited resources. Not only do we want the same item more when it is scarce, we want it most when we are in competition for it. This is a key distinction and one that underpins an important learning about scarcity. We want things more when we are in competition for them, not just when they are scarce. Here's the last fascinating bit from this series of cookie experiments. Who would have thought you could learn so much from a few cookie jars? The one thing that held constant through the research, at no point did the subjects say the cookies tasted any better. They only rated them higher, more attractive, and said that they would pay a higher price for them. Cialdini concludes, quote, therein lies an important insight. The joy is not in the experiencing of a scarce commodity, but in the possessing of it, unquote. It turns out that we like having our cake more than eating it, as long as it's scarce enough. I find the cookie experiment to be fascinating, I think there's there's so many different takeaways from it. But you know, I, I really am amazed how much these researchers were able to pull out just from using a few jars of cookies and and, and measuring how human behavior impacts the way people perceive that. But two things that I, I really think. It's important for you to draw out from from the cookie experiment. One, obviously, is the idea of people wanted it more when they were competing with other people for the cookies. That's what made them want it the most. And when you think about this, tie that back into the idea of the biological limits of the mind, which we talked about in, in, in an earlier podcast there's very much kind of a visceral real sort of evolutionary feel to that right the idea that in the wild you know in the in the times before society existed people are competing for resources and if somebody else has you know more resources than you you want it even more you're more fueled to go get it and i think the other thing that's fascinating is that at no point did they actually rate the cookies any better their their enjoyment of the cookies themselves was unchanged, but the the scarcity bias materially impacted their desire for the cookies. I think that's the part that's really, really critical. The cookies didn't taste any better, but the possession of the cookies just because they were scarce is what made people want them so much. It's what the people really cared the most about. Lastly, I I want to just include a quote about open outcry auctions, right? Open outcry auctions are a great example of not only scarcity, but also many of the other weapons of influence and how they can all come together. You've got social proof, um, et cetera. I'll I'll give you this quote from Charlie Munger where he kind of talks about how multiple biases can compound together in what he calls a Lollapalooza effect to basically multiply the power and the influence of all of these different biases. Quote, finally, the open outcry auction. Well, the open outcry auction is just made to turn the brain into mush. You've got social proof. The other guy is bidding. You get reciprocation tendency. You get deprival super reaction syndrome. This thing is going away. I mean, it just absolutely is designed to manipulate people into idiotic behavior unquote. And and Charlie Munger, again, he's the the billionaire business partner of, of Warren Buffett, and he and Buffett are both famous for saying that they avoid open outcry auctions like the plague. But open outcry auctions are an interesting example because they really demonstrate how all of these biases don't just exist in a vacuum. And that's something, as we're wrapping up the Weapons of Influence series, that's something I really want you to take home and think about is the fact that We've seen a number of instances and cases where the biases kind of blend together and interact and there's there's instances where liking and social proof tie together and there's instances where authority and social proof or authority and liking tie together or scarcity and authority tie together. There's In the real world, things are never as neat and as simple as they are when we're just talking about an individual bias. In the real world, all of this stuff is interplayed and interwoven and, and mixing together. And there's a lot more cognitive biases that we're, that we're doing future episodes on that we're going to drill down and talk about as well. These happen to be some of the biggest and most powerful ones. But in real life, it's much messier. And the reality is all this stuff can compound. And it's not just additive when these things get merged together. It's multiplicative. It's it, it really stacks up and it can, it can absolutely result in crazy outcomes. And, and the more biases you have kind of stacking together, the more you get ridiculous human behavior. And I mean, we've seen throughout this series a number of crazy, wacky, you know, absurd research findings of just simple little turns of phrase or tweaks or all kinds of minor changes that can result in huge impacts. And if you haven't gone back and, and listened to some of the other episodes, after you wrap this up, you should really check out the whole series because it, it all ties together and it's all so important. But as we kind of finish this series up, the thing I really want you to think about is the fact that in the real world, all of this stuff is is mingled together. And that makes it even harder to combat some of these biases, but also gives you the opportunity to really dig down and understand all of these individually, and then how they work together so that you can formulate a way to really be able to be aware of these biases, to combat them so that they don't impact your decision-making in a negative fashion. So what have we learned about the scarcity bias? I think we've learned quite a bit. And this quote from Cialdini sums it up nicely. One of the challenges of dealing with the scarcity bias is, as a 2005 study showed, it's a very physical bias. Quote. Part of the problem is that our typical reaction to scarcity hinders our ability to think. When we watch as something we want becomes less available, a physical agitation sets in, especially in those cases involving direct competition. The blood comes up, the focus narrows, the emotions rise. As this visceral current advances, the cognitive, rational side retreats in the rush of arousal it is difficult to be calm and studied in our approach unquote so there's really there's really a couple takeaways about scarcity that i want that i want to make sure you understand there's two primary reasons that the scarcity bias is so powerful the first is is because things that are difficult to attain are typically more valuable and so at a subconscious level it's kind of like a a mental shortcut. You know, if something that is scarce is typically valuable, okay, this thing is scarce, so it must be valuable. But that's not always the case, right? And that's why we see these crazy outcomes. But that's one of the underpinnings of the the reasons why the bias operates. The second is that as things become less accessible, we lose freedom. And that ties back into the, the idea of psychological reactance theory. It ties back into that, Example of the two-year-olds, right? When we when we have our freedoms taken away from us, or the detergent example is an amazing kind of study in, in how that takes place, right? When we get those freedoms taken away, that's when that really physical, emotional kind of scarcity bias takes place. And there's two conditions that really set the stage for the scarcity bias to be the most powerful. The first is that scarce items are heightened in value when they're newly scarce right think back to the cookie jar experiment when something has recently become scarce we want it even more and we and we, we rate it and think about it as more favorable more desirable and the second thing is that when we're in competition with other people for that particular resource that that makes us even more prone to want whatever that is what want whatever we can't have because somebody else has it or somebody else is competing with us for it So both of those factors are really two conditions that if either or both of those are present, they really amp up and magnify the impact of the scarcity bias. And both of the the detergent example and the cookie jar experiment showcase how powerful those can be. And I think the other thing that I really want you to take away from this is thinking back to the detergent experiment When people had the detergent taken away, they rated it as more favorable, better cleaning, you know, all of these things, when in reality, the reason that they wanted it is because it had been taken away, but they consciously invented all of these justifications for why they wanted it. That's a very insidious, very dangerous behavior, and one that uh, you should take great, care to try and be aware of and really understand what's the real reason that I feel a certain way or think a certain thing and is the reason that I'm telling myself a justification that I've made up instead of the actual reason. So how do we defend against the scarcity bias? I'll start with a quote from Cialdini. Quote: Should we find ourselves beset by scarcity pressures in a compliance situation? then our best response would occur in a two-stage sequence. As soon as we feel the tide of emotional arousal that flows from scarcity influences, we should use that rise in arousal as a signal to stop short. Panicky, feverish reactions have no place in wise compliance decisions. We need to calm ourselves and regain a rational perspective. Once that is done, we can move to the second stage by asking ourselves why we want the item under consideration. If the answer is that we want it primarily for the purpose of owning it, then we should use its ability to help gauge how much we would want to spend for it. However, If the answer is that we want it primarily for its function, that is, we want something good to drive or drink or eat, then we must remember that the item under consideration will function equally well, whether scarce or plentiful. Quite simply, we need to recall that the scarce cookies didn't taste any better, unquote. And I think one of the most important parts of of what Cialdini says there is the importance of maintaining a calm, rational perspective and i've talked i've referenced charlie munger a number of times and, and uh, i may do a future podcast just about him and, and he's such a fascinating individual and incredibly successful businessman but also so wise about psychology and how it impacts human decision making but if you look at him and if you look at warren buffett the reason they've been so successful is and they'll they'll say this many times is partially because of a huge focus on rationality and really trying to be as objective as possible. And in one of the earlier podcast episodes on the science of success, we talked about the ideas of accepting reality and and the reality of perception. And the sooner you can have a totally objective, rational acceptance of the way reality is, the faster you can recognize things like the scarcity bias the faster you can recognize any of these weapons of influence from from kind of seeping into your thoughts and impacting your decision making we've seen countless examples of how powerful how insidious how dangerous these biases can be and the best way to combat it is to is to cultivate that rationality it's to cultivate that awareness it's to cultivate the the ability to both see and understand your own thoughts and if we think back again to the detergent example, to see, you know, why do I really like this thing? What's really driving my behavior? Am I deluding myself into thinking one thing when the reality is something different? Thank you so much for listening to the Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt. At successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including... our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Science of Success.